right now, though, let's get right to that news. As you've been hearing in the the newscasts, could this be a fourth wave driven by the Delta variant? Joining us to talk more about this is Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, great to have you back on the program. Great to be joining you. How concerned should we be? I know we heard earlier today from Dr. Teresa Tam, but how concerned do you think Canadians should be about this? Um, I I think it really has to do with how many people are unvaccinated. You know, for the last few months, we've been talking about percentages of people who are vaccinated, right? And that's been great because it's really been positive and everything. Now it's time for us to start turning the tables and trying to find out how many people are not vaccinated. For example, in the province of British Columbia, did you know that there are 2.1 million people who haven't even had a first shot? Yeah, and that sounds like a pretty high number. Exactly. And that's why Dr. Tam is talking about the potential for a wave, right? Now, the fact of the matter is that you're actually seeing in real time how this may work in the Okanagan. So what's going to end up happening is that waves are not going to start the way they used to. Instead, they're going to have small sparks that are going to develop into outbreaks. And if we're able to stop those outbreaks in time, no wave. But if we ignore it or we essentially people are not listening to um, isolation, quarantine, whatever it may be, then it may spread and eventually turn into a wave. And that's the difference between British Columbia, where you still have those and say Alberta, where we, as of uh, August 16th, are essentially abandoning everything. What are your thoughts on that, too? Do you, I know a lot of people have come forward saying that they're very concerned about that mm-hmm. shift. What are, what are your thoughts on the route that Alberta is taking? It's about a month too soon. And, uh, and it's basically based on, and they've even said it, vaccination numbers, right? The number of people who are vaccinated. At the moment, we have 1.5 million Albertans who still haven't had a first shot. That's still too high because even if you have a perfectly homogeneous a mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated, you may still end up with a few outbreaks here and there. But again, you might be able to put them out if, of course, you've got the proper tracing, isolation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if we were at something where it was like maybe 500,000 people have no vaccine, then I would be much more comfortable. So really, we need to get the vaccine numbers up. And again, Teresa Tam said the exact same thing in order for us to be able to be more confident that we can start living with the virus as opposed to trying to prevent it all the time. Uh, do you think this is also an argument that can be made? And this has been a big discussion in BC with Dr. Henry saying that businesses, she's fully in support of businesses, particularly those like nightclubs and places where people are close together. She's in support of businesses saying you can't come in here unless you've been vaccinated. Is that a way that we try and keep these numbers when we talk about this becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated? Is that how we keep these numbers down? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Because I mean, you've already seen what happens if that's not the case. It was Halloween, Granville Street. I mean, you already have gone through the alternate possibility and it did not go well. So the idea is, is you want to make as many of these non-pharmaceutical interventions, that's what we call them, as possible to be able to limit the amount of spread that's going on. And while there will be a small percentage of people saying, I want the freedom to dance with my mask off, at the end of the day, get vaccinated, you can have your mask off after 15 days. I mean, it's just that simple. What are your thoughts, though, as well? Because people, I think, in some cases are comparing this, say, to the first wave or the second wave, which doesn't seem like a real, a really good comparison, being that we didn't have the mm-hmm. vaccinations then. So so we've been told all along that vaccination is the game changer. But then people, I think, might hear this and say, well, what's the point, once again, if we're fully vaccinated and we're trying to get back to some form of normal life, but being told we still can't do that? 
Well, the, the problem is that it's an all or nothing principle. So you either hit that elimination threshold, everybody calls it herd immunity, but if you realize it's called elimination threshold, then you know that you have to get to that many people who are vaccinated so that you can eliminate the virus. You either get to that or you have to use other measures in order to be able to be sure you're protecting everybody, okay? So that's really what the case is, is that while all of us are going out there getting doubly vaccinated and everything like that, unless we start getting those other 2.1 million British Columbians to start doing the same, we have to use all the other um, interventions in our capacity to be able to prevent. So that's the only way we're going to get past it is if we get to the true elimination threshold, then we don't have to worry about masks. What does this do for your predictions? Because I know you've had many throughout this pandemic and you've been quite close when you've been talking about where you (laughs) think we're going to be. August 11th. It's been like that since about May of last year. (laughs) So honestly, um, in Alberta, I'm kind of fortunate because they said August 16th is the end of the pandemic. Yay. But as I said, it's a month too soon. No, uh, Labor Day is probably more along the lines. And that's partly due to the fact that we had those delays in the the wintertime with respect to the, um, the rollout of the vaccine. And that actually led to more hesitancy. But I still think that by the time we get to the start of school, Um, COVID will be much less of a threat because we are going to start bringing up those numbers of, you know, 12 to 17 year olds, because right now it's like, what, 6% of 12 to 17 year olds are vaccinated with uh, two doses. We need to get those numbers up before school starts. All right, Jason, always great to chat with you and have you on the show. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. It was a pleasure. Take care. Well, continuing the conversation about how Canada is faring when it comes to the battle against COVID-19, the federal government is extending some of the benefits to businesses, to the supports uh, that are given to businesses. They were going to run out in September. They have now been extended to October. And joining me on the line is the Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, Carla Qualtro. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Nice to be speaking with you. Uh, You've had a very busy couple of weeks. So thanks for uh, for being available and talking <laughs> about good. this today. Um, can you talk a bit about, so what exactly is being extended? Okay, so a couple of things. So the Canada Recovery Benefit uh, was, was initially at 50 weeks, and uh, the application window ended at the end of September. So what we've done is, is add four more weeks onto the CRB and extend the application window till the end of October. We've also extended the application period for the Canada Sickness Benefit, Recovery Sickness Benefit, sorry, and the Canada Recovered Caregiving Benefit, but not added additional weeks to those two benefits. And then on the business side, we've extended the wage subsidy and the hiring, the new hiring program by four weeks as well. Uh, we've been talking about this on the program, specifically talking about a labor shortage when it comes yeah. to the hospitality industry. And some of what we're hearing, not the only reason, but one of the reasons some business owners are saying they can't get people to come back to work is because they're getting the subsidy and they were kind of riding it out until it ended in September. Do, do you think it's fair that, that business owners are put in this position where they're almost competing for workers with government? I totally hear what they're saying. And in fact, it's been a really fine line that we've had to walk between supporting workers whose maybe their sector or their industry hasn't bounced back as quickly as others and making sure that we don't disincentivize work when it's available. What I will say, though, is we set up the CRB to provide people with the ability to work and still access the CRB. So there's no threshold. So, for example, last month, we gained about 240,000 jobs in the Canadian economy. 
and many of those people, most of them were part-time, and people took those jobs, even though it was kind of less than the amount they would get on the CRB. But in fact, because of the way the CRB is set up, they could also have possibly qualified for the CRB as well. But I, it was my understanding the the expansion of the EI benefits, those are what is really competing with people and making it actually making it so it is a disincentive to go back to work. Well, I mean, EI has a feature of it that's called working well on claim. And if you work only a certain number of hours, you still get a top up from EI. And again, with most of the jobs that are coming back right now being part time, that shouldn't be a disincentive. But I, I hear you that I'm hearing those same I'm hearing those same concerns from businesses. But the interesting piece is that the labor market data shows that people are taking jobs when they're available. So there's there's somewhere in between there that we have to find the kind of the, 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 the middle ground, and that's what we think we have achieved by lowering the CRB to $300 a week, adding four weeks, and allowing people to work while receiving either EI or the CRB. So with the extension then going to October 23rd, is that an extension with the possibility of another extension, or what happens when we hit that yeah, date? Yeah, absolutely. So when we built this legislation, having learned from the CERB that it was always often unpredictable what was going to have happen next in the pandemic, we built in the ability to add extra weeks without having to go back in, into the House of Commons and change the law. So we can add an additional four weeks after this. Um, after this extension, the law allows us to add two more two-week periods because we add the we add the weeks and two-week periods just because of the way the system is designed. But yes, we can do one more two or two more two or one more four-week period. Uh, will this be happening while people are going to the polls in a federal election? Well, I, I'm not one to uh, to speculate on that topic, Jill. Sorry, but I can tell you we're in a minority government, and as a minority government, we have kind of outlived the average time a minority government lasts in this country. So we're always preparing for uh, an election. But um, from my point of view as minister, I'm just, I'm still working hard to make sure all these systems work for people and people get paid their benefits every two weeks. And I'm just, you know, powering ahead on the things the prime minister has asked me to do. Right. I, I mean, somebody will hear that too, or people might hear that and say, you you have outlived the, the time that generally we see a minority government. But one could point to that and say, well, that doesn't that show that it's it's not broken? Why fix it? I see a couple of things. Again, I think that, you know, we saw at the end of last last uh, the last parliamentary session that there wasn't the cohesion that there had been kind of earlier on in the pandemic. Trying to get this legislation through uh, be, was becoming more and more difficult. Um, but again, I, I, I prefer not to speculate if you, if you can appreciate that, because I'm just, you know, working hard for Delta and working hard in my uh, ministerial portfolio. What do you think this means for businesses or as far as the supports for businesses? Because while we have been hearing that it's been difficult in some cases to get people back to work, uh, businesses have also been calling for the supports to continue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there specific sectors, obviously some that have been hit much harder than others? What does this mean, do you think, then, as far as businesses being able to stay, uh, being able to stay, uh, keep their employees uh, and keep going until we get to a better place in the pandemic? Yeah, you're certainly right that some sectors have been hit harder, like tourism and obviously, but we are seeing others rebound more quickly as things open up across the country. Um, and over the next months, what we expect to happen is many more workers will reconnect to their employment. Um, but at the same time, we've got these 
business benefits and, and programs available to businesses who still may find themselves significantly reduced in their um, in their business. And, and hopefully, by transitioning everybody from a more wage subsidy model, where we acknowledge that 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 people aren't like the output of the business is such that it's not necessarily able to keep hiring. But now we've got this hiring program, which provides a benefit to companies and incentivizes hiring and increased hours. And at at what point do we have to stop spending like this? Or at what point do we look at what's happening and it also has to be about reopening the border, doing that in a safe way, making sure our vaccination levels are at a state where we can reopen and, and start to rebuild? It's a really good question, and you know, we, we one we we talk a lot about within the kind of cabinet COVID committee that I sit on, in terms of looking at the public health data, looking at the 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 COVID numbers, the vaccination numbers. I heard a bit of your last segment. The the closer we are to kind of eighty first dose, eighty second dose the more able we'll be as a country to withstand any other waves or any other variants that comes into Canada. And that will directly impact our ability to open the borders more. Um, and, and different provinces have their own ways of determining when we should move into a different phase or a different stage, depending on your province. But it's a very live conversation. Um, every week we look at the data. Every week we try to speculate based on the best advice is is it time now what's going to happen but i think you can read into our extension of benefits the reality that we're not quite there yet so we're keeping looking at it we know the prime minister has announced a loosening at the border but we're not really there yet for a full border reopening at this time right and any idea on that like you said there are talks ongoing any idea when we might learn more about that well, every month we try and provide, you know, throughout this pandemic, let me take a step back. We really, we've always tried to provide certainty. And at the beginning, it was certainly hard because we didn't know what was coming next. But even with this announcement today of the extension of the recovery benefits, it's a lot earlier, say, than when we had announced the extension of the CERB last year, because in real time, we were pivoting and trying to figure out how best to move forward during the pandemic. But uh, as I said, we really just, we look at the public health data, we look at what's going on around the world, what other countries, what, other, what the provinces are doing, and then we align our federal measure, measures as best we can with what's going on the ground and with what we're being advised to do by public health. All right, Minister Qualtro, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us and talking about this. My pleasure, nice to speak with you, Jill. We are going to take a little time now to talk about an inclusive housing project. It was proposed in an area of South Surrey. It had a lot of people backing it. It had gone to a public hearing that lasted several hours. Council debated this housing project and it was voted down around one in the morning on Tuesday. It is called the Harmony Development and we're going to talk about why some who were pushing for this are quite upset that the project is not going to go ahead. Doug Tennant is the CEO of Unity, which is the non-profit organization that is involved with this project. And Doug Tennant is with us on the line now. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jill, and giving me the opportunity to talk about Harmony and the decision by council to block it from being built. And this story might appear complex, but it's actually very straightforward. It's about human rights, the right to have a home, the right to live where you grew up, where you work, where your friends and family are. And when the mayor and his councillors voted down Harmony Apartments this week, they crushed the hopes of many people 
desperately needing safe and affordable housing in South Surrey, including people with intellectual disabilities. So what makes this project different? And I think you kind of touched on it there, but what makes Harmony different than, say, uh, any other development? Yeah, so it's, it's a very unique um, uh, development in that uh, it, it is uh, housing that is representative of the community, uh, but specifically including people with intellectual disabilities. In, in 2016, we completed an apartment called Chorus, the first purpose-built apartment, uh, rental apartment in Surrey in over three decades. And we're not really even housing developers, but we asked the people that we support, people with disabilities, what they, they needed. And the number one thing is they needed housing. They needed to have a variety of housing options. And so we got things together. We built Chorus. Chorus has 71 rental uh, homes, uh, 20 of which are for people with intellectual disabilities spread throughout the building. Uh, And then 51 for the general population, uh, students, seniors, families, uh, people who also desperately need housing in South Surrey. And Chorus has been a great success. It's, uh, It's one of the top three inclusive housing models in Canada. Uh, selected by Inclusion Canada. So what reasons were you given or did you hear at council from those who voted against it and effectively voted this project down? Well, this is what what was one of the most awful things about that long evening was um, we listened to three hours of people calling in, 67 to 9 in support, stories of the, uh, the, the senior who's being evicted, Uh, The person with Down syndrome who said, I want to live where I grew up. Uh, Teachers calling in saying they could no longer afford to live there. So three hours of that. 463 letters and and emails sent in favour. A petition with 6,040 people in support. All of that. And then at 1.05 in the morning, after councillors Hundale, uh, Locke and Pettigrew had spoken very strongly in favour, Councillor, uh, the mayor and his councillors, uh, Patton, uh, Niagara, uh, Guerra, and Elford, voted it down, opposed. They gave no reason. They gave no explanation. There- and I find that quite disrespectful to the people, including vulnerable people, who reached out and tried to make a difference with this project to get no explanation from that. Now, since then, uh, in the media, I have heard of a variety of uh, reasons, a couple. One saying that uh, we did not do enough consultations, which is empirically not true. We did far more consultations that required, including uh, 10 times reaching out to our immediate neighbours, some of whom were against the the, uh, the proposal, and, and five in-person or Zoom meetings uh, with them or their representatives to talk about their concerns and, and try to address their concerns. So that was one reason. And the second reason now that's being said again after the decision was made in a silent fashion is um, that the apartment's too high, that it's six stories. Well, the problem that I have with that is that this very council, this current council in March of 2020, approved uh, a Semiamu Town Centre land use plan that specifically says that on our property we can have four to six uh, stories. And we worked in good faith with the city of Surrey for two and a half years trying to get to the point uh, where we got to, where all they had to do was approve it. We don't get any extra consideration as a not-for-profit provider, housing provider in Surrey. We pay the same development cost charges. We pay the same permitting fees as a private developer would pay. And, and uh, so we're not, we weren't asking. They, they didn't have any skin in the game. All they had to do was approve it, and they didn't.
It seems like looking at some of the media coverage of this, and I know in the Peace Arch News that you mentioned to uh, Councillor Lori Guerra was quoted, she brought up the issue of height, saying that you and, and other officials with Unity had been unwilling to compromise on the height. Uh, there's also, there was a quote from a, a resident as well saying that a six-story complex in the middle of two-story homes isn't compatible, and they questioned what would happen with the future of the rest of the site. Is is that the main pushback that you heard? Right. So I'd like to address, um, yes, and I'd like to address both of those in, in quick succession. So Councillor Guerra said in that news article that the, the heights of the buildings, and I'm quoting here, the heights of the buildings were just devastating for these people, neighbours. And meanwhile, I was talking with uh, a young person with Down syndrome who was devastated that she would not have the housing that she'd been waiting 10 years for. Talking with an 80-year-old senior who's being evicted from her basement suite. So I do have to say, we do consult. And when we consult, we talk to all stakeholders. So I need to weigh, you know, the neighbor's inconvenience of looking at a six-story building, because you need to know that, in fact, parking, etc., were not... Uh, serious issues as as per the staff report. So I need to weigh their inconvenience of looking at a six-story building against the human rights of people who need homes. I need to weigh the neighbour, you know, who might have to wait a couple of minutes extra in traffic with that 80-year-old lady uh, being evicted from the basement suite. And I have to weigh uh, the opinions of an age-restricted luxury uh, townhouse complex to the families that I talk to that can't find housing. And so when we consult, we consult everyone, not just the neighbours. Now, the mayor, he did go out to visit the neighbours. So, and that's great. As a leader, you should go and, um, you know, listen to people's concerns and things like that. Um, We do wish that he had come out and visited with uh, some of the people uh, with developmental intellectual disabilities who want to live there, some of the 200 people who have expressed an interest in actually living in there, uh, the majority of which who actually live in South Surrey. So um, they did consult, and, and we found that out because we were canvassing the area and, and you know, young people and maybe future tenants of, of uh, Harmony were there, and they were asking, they were sort of trying to explain to the people there what the project was all about, and, and, and uh, quite a few people said, well, no, we don't need to hear your information because the mayor has already been out here and, and told us about your project. Um, so when we consult, we call, consult with everyone. And then just to address the, the height of the building, which was the number one thing that we did hear from, from the neighbours for sure. Um, it, it, we have a five and a half acre property there. We purposely put the apartment in the corner, the furthest away from our neighbours. So we're actually 120 metres away from our northern neighbours. We're 66 metres away from our neighbours to the west. We're across a busy street and 38 metres away from our neighbours to the south. And then on the other side is a gas station, Dairy Queen Strip Mall. So the majority of people who are just devastated by having to look at a six-storey apartment can't even see it from their homes. And, and this is where I'm very frustrated because uh, council, they decided to weigh that more than the desperate uh, pleas for housing uh, from people who live in the community. And when I was listening to the people calling in over that three hours, I was like, wow, this is a wonderful community. Like, you know, this is what our housing's about. And then at the end of that all, 105 in the morning, without any explanation. And, and I do have like an idea of, of like my idea about why it didn't go through. And, and, and this is 
when I met with Samir two and a half years ago to tell him about our project, he, his initial reaction was, well, that type of housing doesn't go in that neighborhood. And on the April 26th public hearing, the first public hearing, uh, he said these two things, and I quote, this project is in the wrong location for this type of housing. Another quote, uh, we need affordable housing, but built in, it in the communities where it will fit in and work. How horribly demoralizing to the people who live in South Surrey, who desperately need this type of housing, who contacted 463 with letters to council, and yet they refused it at the end of the day without any explanation. All right. So it is a human rights issue. All and, right. And that's why we are so absolutely uh, going to make sure this happens. It just might not happen uh, for the next couple of years. All right, Doug, we'll leave it there for today because we are going to talk to one of the councillors that was in favour of this coming up. But thanks for your time today and for bringing uh, this to our attention and for joining the program. Thanks very much for your time and I, and I, and I appreciate your interest in, in this project. All right. That is Doug Tennant, CEO of Unity. That is the nonprofit organization behind the Harmony development. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. As mentioned, Brenda Locke is a Surrey City Councillor, one of the councillors that voted in favour. We're going to get her take on what happened with this project at Council when we return. Well, plenty of speculation about a fall election. At the same time, we are seeing the federal government laying out a proposal for for a new digital safety commission, a commission that would have the power to regulate what is considered hateful content online. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Jesse Miller, the founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on this as far as what does this even mean as far as having a digital safety commission that is tasked with regulating online hateful content? So it, there's a lot of layers to this. And the reality of it is, is that this does put a lot of onus on social media companies, very similarly to what the CRTC has with broadcast companies. So you have me as a guest right now. Uh, you have faith that I'm going to have decorum and, and say things in an appropriate way. But if I were to say something extremely hateful, targeting a group of people right now, there would be people who would have the ability to complain to the CRTC about the broadcast and they would look at who is responsible and how I had access. The same with the internet is that anybody can be a broadcaster and using platforms for like social media, like uh, 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 pornographic websites where you can host content, or even something where you're hosting a podcast. If it's occurring inside of Canada, there's, a, there's little regulation that applies to the oversight of the internet within our borders. Now, that said, we have very good laws in Canada that protect us against hate speech. We have very good laws that protect the vulnerable from, let's say, production and distribution of child pornography. But this commission is looking at how we host that content on social media platforms in Canada. And there's parts of this that are very good. The concern being is that this is being presented not with a consultation process, but with a here's what's going to happen. And we're doing this to check off some boxes of hate and terrorism and protecting children. But the reality of it is, is that it does uh, encroach into our spaces of free expression. It does encroach into the ability for us to host things in ways where we don't really know who the arbiters of moral virtue are in this space. And if the government's making that choice, then all Canadians should be concerned about how this proposal does infringe on our charter rights. 
And you said too, it's being done without consultation. And that I think is one of the concerns or one, uh, one that's been brought up a few times is exactly that. Who's deciding where that line is and, and do we get any say in this or this is just something that's going to come in? So let's, let, let's highlight this way. If I was to say something hateful about a group of individuals, whether they be ethnically or, or religiously profiled, um, we can agree that that's despicable and that I should be facing some kind of criminal uh, uh, consequence for my actions. And we've seen that in Canada. Recently, the leader of the Canadian White Nationalist Party was charged with creating anti-Semitic content through our existing laws, and he was hosting it on YouTube. But within that, when we think about the way that people have discourse, There are concerns here that if you extend this out, you won't be able to have appropriate critique. You won't be able to open up dialogue that has to be explored when when you have groups who are becoming radicalized. And so in that, when you consider the way that we react to things, majority of people want to protect children on the Internet. But we don't really understand what it means to have these limitations applied to us where we might get the double-edged sword of, oh, yeah, we've protected kids. But now you're putting yourself into a very vulnerable position where your thoughts, your content, the way you conduct yourself might be as equally open to interpretation. And so who those individuals are, yes, it's going to be a commissioner. It's going to be appointed by whichever government is is in place at the time. But there are parts of this that are very concerning when it comes down to how do we value our free freedom of expression in Canada? And what does that mean when a social media website is hosting your page? Right. And just to be clear, when we're talking about this, is this in addition to Bill C-10? So this is almost like the things that didn't get included into C-10 along with C-36. Now, in that, I mean, the majority of experts in this space in Canada are, are very wary of how, how 36 and C-10 were, were kind of introduced and pushed through. But the thing is, is that this is more about putting the accountability on the host. So if I post something that is inflammatory on Twitter today, Twitter, once it's flagged, has 24 hours based on Canadian rules, if this is something that's passed, to, to take the information down and decide whether or not I should be part of that community. Now, like I said, there are parts of that that we do need. We do need better age gating on the platforms. We do need better responses to hate, harassment, and, and, and online targeting of individuals. But the thing is, is that there's, there's this broad structure here with this proposal that doesn't actually kind of highlight how that's going to occur. It's almost this proactive monitoring of content. And if it meets the criteria within their five designated harms, that can be very overreaching for the everyday citizen. Because it's also brought up more questions about who exactly is going to fall under these rules. And the government says, don't worry about your individual users, that this is going to apply to the Internet services. But that's where the questions are, isn't it? That individual users and the rights of free speech for individual users is what's at question. Yeah, and, and so that's that's a really interesting kind of point that we should all highlight is that, yes, this applies to Facebook, but it's open source Facebook. So if I can go to a Facebook page and, and not have to join the community, but I can just see it, then that would be something that would apply here. But if I'm using Facebook Messenger to send a group message to a number of individuals who are already in my connection, whether they be known people or people I've connected to online, this oversight would not look there. But if somebody took screenshots from that and then posted it, that might apply. Right, which which kind of makes sense in that if you're having a conversation with somebody and if you're saying horrible things, granted, I think we can all agree that's that's awful, but are you breaking the law if you're having a conversation perhaps with somebody that happens to agree with your horrible things? Is that different than having somebody else share it publicly? 
Well, and that gets into that weird space of how how do we want things to be looked at? So let's say there's a group of individuals meeting in a basement and having a horrible conversation. If the RCMP or CSIS were to send in an undercover operator to establish whether or not that group is radicalized, they would have legal precedent to be able to take those steps and then identify how they were conducting an investigation. And ideally, we would have faith because it would be uh, an active investigation by a body of, of law enforcement that we trust. But that said... When we think about it on online purposes, this isn't police having extra powers to investigate the things that they get a phone call about when somebody's being targeted online. This is about a group of individuals who will be appointed by the government who will regulate content that users are creating. Now, we already have laws like this in Canada, one being the obscenity law. Now, not a lot of Canadians know this, but we have very specific rules about what meets criteria in our media around obscenity. And prior to the Internet, that content was highly regulated by uh, people who would be working for the government. You get a movie that was produced in the United States or some other country, and they would basically watch it and apply the laws that we have and say, no, that scene there, that meets obscenity criteria in Canada. So this is the rating or this scene has to be cut out. Once we lifted the boundaries of the Internet and anybody can watch anything on any platform, those laws really don't apply the same way unless, of course, you have the content and somebody's being investigated. So if you were to create a movie today that had a horror scene and you just decide to distribute it, you might actually be in violation of our obscenity laws. The thing is, is you have to go through the process of having it up for distribution in Canada with the idea of like a movie theater being hosted on TV. With the internet, like I said, we've kind of lifted those boundaries. So this oversight committee is now being able to potentially just look at how a complaint comes their way, and they can come and look at software, they could look at hardware, they could look at content. We just don't necessarily know whether that's going to apply to the everyday individual, or because it was found on Facebook, then it leads to a further investigation. Right. And which also leads to the question, then, how on earth could one committee possibly police all of the platforms that are out there? And do we not already have laws in place to protect people? Well, we definitely do have laws that protect people. And in 2014, Canada introduced what was called the Protecting Canadians from Online uh, Crime Act. And it basically was kind of touted as protecting kids, but there was nothing in it that really kind of went towards that vulnerable age group. Because we, like I said earlier, we have very strong child pornography laws in Canada. But within that, let's say 2013, a person's an intimate relationship, they send some nude photographs back and forth between a partner and themselves. That content was actually deemed to be somewhat property at that point. The person who owned it got to decide how they're going to use it. And let's say the relationship dissolves, the person puts that content online, person calls RCMP and they say, well, we can't really do anything, but we'll go tell them to take it down. There was no legal recourse there. There's no consequence to that action. So 2014, the law is introduced. Now you have an indictable offense if the content is, is distributed or hosted without consent of the person who's in the image. And between 2014 and 2020, we had about 5,000 active investigations based on now people being empowered to say, no, I trust that person. They've gone and broke the law. This needs to be investigated. What happens here is that when we look at this idea of these oversight groups, yeah, you might not have a person every day looking at some random thing on Facebook, but that's what we've been edging towards. We want a safer environment for kids online. We want safer environments for people who are vulnerable when they feel like they're being targeted. But the laws that we do have are in place. We just need better resources to connect individuals to the police who could help. And it's not necessarily going to be a beat officer. Maybe we see specialized teams that evolve to do more community policing uh, investigations that way. And ideally, when we're thinking about a society where we've really lifted the bricks and mortar out of our world, that might be a logical step in being more proactive in how individuals can have resources from the policing community to address the issues when they're feeling unsafe online. All right, Jesse Miller, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, Jill, thank you.
Well, starting today, we are having a new regular segment. On the final Friday of every month, we are going to be talking books. And what better day to start than the Friday before a long weekend, when hopefully people who enjoy reading and want to get into that book a little bit more might have a little more time to do that. Well, Marianne Yazedjian is the manager of Book Warehouse and joins me on the line now. Marianne, great to have you on the show again. Thank you so much, Jill. It is right into that summer time where hopefully people who enjoy reading, again, love to get those books and sink into those books. So let's talk about some of the more popular ones. What are people reading right now? So much. Um, people people aren't really going for like the light beach read like they might in regular summers. I think people are really ready to just, you know, since we're not traveling too much these days, people are ready to get into like a really good book and, uh, you know, do a bit of a staycation and do some really good reading. Um, so there's a few that I've read recently that I just recommend so highly. Uh, so I'm going to jump right into it. One of them that I just read, uh, What Strange Paradise by Omar El Akkad. He is the author of American War that came out a few years ago that was very highly reviewed and regarded. This is a refugee story told from a children's point of view. So it's a young boy who survives the sinking of a refugee boat and a teenage girl living on an island who finds him and helps him evade authorities. It's so beautifully written. It's so well told. It's just, it's such an interesting viewpoint because the child's point of view makes the story simpler. They don't always know what's going on, but you just are absolutely heartbroken for the experience. Hmm. Interesting you said that too, that people are really uh, kind of gravitating towards the the heavier subject matter or these types mm-hmm. of books, because you, you might think too, with the pandemic and everything that's going on, uh, people are looking for that escape. But I think it's probably a bit of both. Exactly. And I mean, personally, you know, for me, any book that has, you know, completely different subject matter than my life is an escape for me. So it doesn't have to be on the lighter side of things. It just has to be, you know, an experience, a situation that I've never found myself in. And I love reading about that. All right. There's also a book called Astra. What's this one about? Yes. So this book is Astra by Cedar Bowers. And Cedar is actually, I'm going to call her local. She lives part-time in Victoria and part-time on Galliano Island. This is her first novel, and it's also an excellent debut. I, I love stories about uh, growing up in unconventional environments. And this is about a girl who is born in a remote BC commune. Her father is just incapable of raising a child. And so her influences growing up are very sporadic. There's uh, the different people who come in and out of her lives in this commune, but there's some really beautiful relationships that evolve, especially with the older women influences in her life. And as her life goes on, she, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but, you know, she has a child, there's relationships with people around her, and her character is one that you, you, you love her sometimes, you just really don't like her at all sometimes, but she's just written in such a creative way. She's, she has no guile at all, but she's still quite a manipulative character, and you just can't wait to see what's going to happen to her. Interesting. And if people are seeing this too, the title Astra, it's just the one word on the book, nothing mm-hmm. to do with the vaccine or vaccination. It's no. just a strange coincidence that it's the Not same word. Yes, yes. This one is because I think it was uh, the parent characters in the book uh, were really into the stars. So they named her Astra. Interesting. That one sounds great. Uh, Miracle mm-hmm. on Cherry Hill. 
Yes. Now, I haven't read this one, but my colleague Trish, who manages our Semiamu store, has been raving about it. This is the same author, uh, Sun Mi Huang, who wrote The Hen Who Dreamed She Could Fly a few years ago, which is just one of the sweetest, most lovely books ever. So my colleague Trish says that this one, uh, Miracle on Cherry Hill, she calls it bewitching and bursting with originality. This book explores the fragility of nature and human lives. She says it's the perfect gift to anyone you know who needs a bit of a boost. So this would be great for somebody who does want something a little more, something a little lighter, something a little more fun to read. Which I think, yeah, still probably a few people that would put themselves uh, in that category as well. Uh, What else are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about some historical fiction. Kate Quinn's The Rose Code. Uh, people are probably familiar with her. She's the author of The Alice Network and The Huntress. And she writes just the best kind of historical fiction because she takes a true piece of history and then writes fictional characters around it. So this is the story of female code breakers at Bletchley in the UK. I don't know if I've said that right, Bletchley. Uh, so, it, yeah, just strong fictional characters, and it was just... Anybody who loves historical fiction would love The Rose Code. I loved The Alice Network, and it made me want to just go and find more stories about the real women and learn more uh, about them. Yes, you should definitely pick this one up then. I also love The Alice Network. All right. We are also looking at, what's this one called? Care Of. Care Of, yes. So we're into nonfiction now. Uh, Care Of is the latest book by Ivan Coyote, who is just one of the best storytellers existing in the world today. Um, This book is letters that Ivan received over the last few years, and they are now responding to them. When the pandemic hit, Ivan was, you know, of course... uh, staying at home like the rest of us, and they decided to go back through some of their correspondence and respond to these letters. Uh, Facebook messages, letters, notes left on their car after a reading. These stories, uh, sorry, these letters are so beautiful. Some, uh, a lot of them are LGBTQIA plus uh, coming out stories. There's letters of uh, parents of trans kids asking how to how to navigate, and I could only read about one or two stories. I would start to have a little cry, and then I'd have to put the book down and read a little bit more later. Hmm. The people just lay themselves bare in these stories, and Ivan's responses are just the most heartfelt and sincere, inspirational, understanding messages I've ever read. Uh, what an interesting concept, too, and I'm guessing you wouldn't be the only one that you would take it in small doses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of it, I mean, like I said, it's beautiful and inspirational, but some of it is just completely heartbreaking. Hmm. All right. So people be warned that one might be a bit of a tearjerker. What yeah. is uh, Finding the Mother Tree? Finding the Mother Tree is the hot book of the summer. So this is written by Suzanne Simard. She is a professor of forest ecology at UBC. This book illuminates the fascinating truth that trees are actually a complicated interdependent circle of life, that forests are social and cooperative, and they are connected through underground networks. It is fascinating. I had no idea how obviously evolved, that sounds terrible, Uh, how evolved nature is. The trees actually learn and adapt behavior. They recognize their neighbors and they remember the past. Hmm. And she's a a forest ecologist. So I would imagine that brings that very interesting perspective. Yes, exactly. And another interesting fact about Suzanne Simard, uh, you might be familiar with the novel Overstory by Richard Powers that won the Pulitzer Prize either last year or the year before, one of the characters in that book is actually based on Suzanne Simard. Hmm, interesting. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Um, one other one for books that are already out, uh, Crying in H, Mart. 
Yes, yes. So this book is by Michelle Zauner, Crying in H Mart. Uh, my colleague Caitlin, the manager at our Broadway store, is uh, I think she's listening to this one on audiobook right now, which is just a great thing to do when you're commuting to work. Um, she calls this a deep, personal, and nostalgic read. It deals with identity, race, strange relationships between mothers and daughters, different cultures. She said it's just, uh, she just cannot get enough of it. She's loving it. And it's this is a memoir. I love memoir. Yes. If they're written well, and most of them are, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the ones I've read uh, have been very well done. But if they're if they're done well, I just love the way somebody kind of invites you into their life. Exactly, and you you read a whole new experience that is just so new and fresh to you. We are also going to take a, a quick look at some up, uh, upcoming titles. Uh, Miriam Taves, we've talked about her uh, in the past. Yes. You were kind enough uh, to give me a sneak peek at this one. Uh, I, I'm I'm about. A quarter of the way through, I'm really okay. liking it. It's different. My my favorite Miriam Taves book is, um, oh no, All My Puny Sorrows. This is very different, yeah. but it's still very interesting. She writes the best characters. I, I don't know what it is about her characters. Like this one that you're reading now, Fight Night, told from the point of view of... Uh, Oh, is she 11 years old? Around that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, no matter what character is she's writing in her book, she just writes the most fascinating characters that you just can't help but love them. And in this one, in Fight Night, the, the main the narrator, you just, you love her, you love her mom. The grandma character is just one of the best characters I've ever read. Yeah, she's uh, very, very interesting. I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing what happens there. Uh, Zoe, yeah. uh, Zoe Whittle also has a book coming up. Yes, and uh, I love Zoe Goodall's writing, so I'm very excited for this one. It's called The Spectacular, and I don't know much about it. It's a multi-generational story exploring sexuality, gender, and the weight of reproductive freedoms. And Zoe Whittle does tend to write books that really make you think, so I am really excited about this one. All right, there are also a lot of Terry Fallis fans out there, which uh, and, and they will be very happy to know he, uh, Terry Fallis, also has a book coming out. Yes, so this is a follow-up to a couple of his earlier novels, uh, Best Laid Plans and The High Road. So this one is called Operation Angus, and that one does come out in a couple of months. He is laugh-out-loud funny. You, you'll be reading, and all of a sudden you'll just be snorting with laughter at something he's written on the page. So if you want a light read, that'll be fantastic. All right, and before I let you go, I know I don't think you've read this one, but I wanted to share this because it's not often that we have a late-night host who is talking about reading, but I know this uh, little clip that Jimmy Fallon put out is getting a lot of attention. Hey guys, it's Jimmy. I'm just starting to read the winner of the Tonight Show Summer Reads Book Club, hashtag Fallon Summer Reads, The Plot by Gene Hamph Corlitz. Uh, So far, it's awesome. So pick up a copy, check the link in my bio if you need help, uh, support your local bookstores. The Plot is the one to read this summer. <laughs> I like that he put a plug in there to support your local bookstores as well. But that have you noticed, are, are, are a lot of people, is it getting uh, a lot of attention, The Plot? It has been, yes. And uh, I have to admit that I hadn't, it hadn't uh, come onto my radar yet until you mentioned it. And I picked that up and I'm looking at it right now and I read the synopsis and it sounds fascinating. I, I love a good, uh, I love a good plagiarism story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've just started it. I'm a couple chapters in and it's uh, gripping. I would have to agree with Jimmy Fallon on that one. Uh, let's yeah, yeah. leave it there, Marianne. So great to chat with okay. you and we will chat with you again next month. But thanks so much for the book recommendations and the points on that and have a great weekend. Thank you so much. You too.